are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So as I considered this passage for tonight, I just kept coming back around to Peter, who in typical Peter form gets terrified and does something completely absurd on this mountaintop. In the midst of this vision, he offers to make some dwelling places for them. As I thought about that, I I put myself into Peter's shoes, and this is what resulted. You know, following Jesus along the way wasn't always easy. Sometimes it left me downright terrified. I first met him when he came through Capernaum. He'd been at the synagogue teaching, just as we heard he'd done back in his hometown of Nazareth. There'd been some talk about how he'd run into trouble in Nazareth. It's hard to know why. In our synagogue, he not only had some wisdom to share, but he also prayed over a man who had some kind of unclean spirit. The man was made well. That was a bit earth-shaking, really, but for me, not nearly so much as what happened next, because he came to my home. My mother-in-law was sick with some sort of fever that kept her bedridden, So we asked if he might be able to help her, and he did. Just like that, the fever was gone. She was up on her feet, looking to find something to cook in the kitchen, just as if she'd never been sick at all. What do you make of that? I mean, there were sometimes these holy men wandering about, making synagogue leaders nervous. They tried to effect cures or talked as if they were God's own Messiah. But Jesus seemed able to actually do the things he talked about. He was intriguing, I suppose, and well, my wife was certainly grateful that he'd healed her mother. It was just a few days later that I saw him again on the shore of the lake of Gennesaret. We were cleaning the nets after a long night of fishing, or a long night of trying to fish. The lake hadn't yielded a thing after long hours. The crowd had begun to gather, and Jesus hardly had room to move, so he asked if he could use one of our boats. Sure, I said. I took him out just far enough from the shore so he could speak to the growing crowd from the boat. And he just mesmerized us with his teaching. All you could hear was his voice and the sound of the gulls. That's how quiet the crowd was. When he was finished, he told me to push out the boat a little further and put down the nets. (laughs) Sure thing, Jesus. I'll humor you on this. You might be a grand teacher, but I'm the one who knows about catching fish. And after a long, barren night, there's no chance of catching anything now that the sun has come up. And then it happened. No sooner were the nets in the water than they were so full that they risked tearing apart. 
That was just too much, too much for me. I fell to my knees in front of him and I cried out, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And I was, I am. But he insisted that I could still be with him. In fact, that I should follow him. Right there on the shore, my brother Andrew and I decided to go with him, along with James and John as well. He was that compelling. And in his own way, he was so gentle, easy to trust. That was the thing about Jesus. He'd be telling one of his parables, and you'd see the twinkle begin in his eyes. He'd come across some poor, sick soul, and compassion was written across his face. When we sat at the fire late at night and ate our dinner, he was as quick to laugh as any one of us. Yet there were these other moments when he'd look at you, and there wasn't so much a, a, a twinkle in his eye as there was fire. I've never felt safer with anyone than I did with Jesus, but I'd also never been as afraid of anyone as I was in those days. Remember the day he asked us, who do the crowds say that I am? Someone said, oh, John the Baptist. Someone else said, Elijah. Another one of us said, one of the ancient prophets has arisen. He paused and he said, who do you say that I am? My answer was out of my mouth before I could even stop it. The Messiah of God, I said. I'd been thinking it for weeks, but I never dared to say it aloud. Yet when he asked, I couldn't stop the words from just blurting out. Don't say that to anyone, he said, and that fire was in his eyes again. And then he began to talk about his own suffering and death at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes which wasn't at all what any one of us wanted to hear. The Messiah of God is a victor, not a victim. And I swore to myself to not say anything about this until I could understand what he was talking about. Well, it was just about a week after that that he called me, and James and John invited us to hike up the mountain with him. It was a good climb. When he got to the top, he raised his head, closed his eyes, and he began to pray. Three of us weren't unaccustomed to this with him, so we just settled down to rest and wait. And we watched him. We watched his face begin to change. He looked different somehow. We couldn't quite describe it. But it, it was like his clothes were shining like the sun. And then, in an instant, there, there was with him two other figures. They were talking together. I'd never seen them before. They didn't look at all familiar. But somehow I knew, we knew, it was Moses and Elijah. Ghosts? Are we seeing ghosts? Do you know that kind of fear? The kind of scared causes your mind to just race 
You end up blurting out something when probably you should just have kept your mouth shut. That kind of scared. You say something and it's just so stupid, but you, you don't even have time to regret it because you're just terrified. Master, I said, it's, it's good to be here with you. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, which was really a load of nothing. Good for us to be here? We were scared out of our wits, all three of us. Dwellings? Tents? I'm talking about making something for them to sleep in, in the face of the most frightening, probably the most sacred moment in my whole life to that point. And then the two other figures were gone, and we looked at each other like, this is, this is not right, what? And the clouds began to swirl. They swirled all around us, descended so thick we could hardly see our fingers in front of our faces. And a voice came, a strong, steady, powerful voice came, and it said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. And then it was over. The clouds dissolved, and it was just Jesus there with us. He looked calm and determined. And then he smiled at us. And I let out a deep breath when I saw that twinkle back in his eyes. We didn't say a word about this to anyone, because truly, what could you say? Even my own brother Andrew, who'd been on the road with us the whole time, he probably would have thought we'd just lost our minds. It was better to hold the story to our own selves. Maybe I was just a little embarrassed about my comment about making the dwellings up there on the mountaintop. Yeah, I, I was. But I had a good few things to be embarrassed about in those days. That feeling of fear when he had us catch all those fish and I told him just to go away. Or that day that I thought I could walk with him across the water and I ended up going under because I was afraid. <laughs> the dwellings on the mountaintop. The time I tried to correct him for saying that he was going to die at the hands of the authorities and he turned around and he looked at me and he called me a Satan. All the times he tried to drill into our heads what he was there to do and we just couldn't get it straight. We wanted a victory march with banners and swords. We wanted to see Messiah oust the Romans and restore the land to the people of God under Messiah. And we just couldn't get past that dream. Or we couldn't until the night they arrested him. Arranged to have him crucified. That was the night of my greatest shame. Three times in a row I denied ever having known him. I let him die alone, in spite of all the big promises I'd made about never leaving his side, never. And then I just lied my way out of there. That just about killed me. 
Now remember, though, the other side of that, those glorious 40 days when he was with us again more alive than I'd ever seen anyone be. I remember the warmth and light and love in his eyes and his promise that while he would be going soon to the presence of God, God's presence would come among us like never before. I remember the day it happened when the Spirit struck us like flint, setting us alight and giving us a courage that was almost beyond belief. I remember, too, I was getting old. Young John Mark asked to hear my stories from those days. He said he wanted to write them all down and share them with anyone who wanted to meet Jesus. I could have hedged my bets and left out the parts of the stories in which I was such a lost fool. It was tempting, but I love the earnest look in Mark's eyes and the way he took my stories and crafted them. See, those stories aren't really good news unless the bad news of my story, of my sorry self, are told in their fullness. When you tell the bad news, those stories become good news. Because the man who thought that Moses and Elijah needed tents on the top of that mountain, who was scared out of his pants time and again, was made into the person who would go to any length to tell his full story. And maybe that's the most important story of all. We got a chance to start again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.